things are getting interesting. <laughs> things are uh, getting interesting in the many areas. And I, I uh, feel, by way of uh, theme, let us say, that uh, we introduce... No, no, I, I don't... There's no sense, really, in being uh, formal about it, is there, really? Let's just sit here and... Well, I, I happen to be in a position which is a kind of, uh, I suppose you might say, an ambiguous position. <laughs> it's difficult to know how these things happen, but I am constantly being bombarded by great, great collections every day of junk mail. Well, we call it junk mail, you know, the terminology referring to junk mail, but actually I don't call it junk mail. I think it's the most significant mail because the junk mail really lays it on a line. I mean, it, it doesn't fool around. Now, I hope I didn't confuse you by using the expression, lays it on the line. I understand this was purely an Indiana expression and one which is hardly ever heard out here on the eastern seaboard. Laying it on the line means laying it on the line. Okay? Well, I get this piece of junk mail the other day, and it, uh, it contains one of the most interesting propositions I've seen in a long time. Now, the only reason I'm bringing these things to you is because I am perfectly aware that, uh, oh, I'd say almost all of the people, I, uh, the percentage of people who are not involved in daily brouhaha, hullabaloo, uh, pursuit of whatever it is that makes it possible to buy a new breezeway next year, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, ad infinitum, ad nauseum, you know, the whole jazz, the rigmarole, the brouhaha, the hoopla. Well, most people are involved in that, you see. Well, by a lot of tricks of, of uh, fate and inclination and uh, probably uh, probably even uh, inheritance I find myself not really involved in that and so I am and have been enabled by the very nature of the slot into which I have fallen I have been able to examine minutely millions of things which most people if they even see them at all don't have the time to fool with they just throw it aside they don't go into it you know you know what I mean by this this is the role I suppose you might call it loosely of the gadfly just fools around you know hollers uh, sits in the bushes and watches the stuff go by and shouts you see well uh, the thing about the non-gadfly I can see this is that is that he is involved I mean he's walking along the trail you know it's like a great big great big wagon train there and they're all flubbing along there and somebody's out there in the bushes who's not really part of the train somehow he got off somewhere along the line and he's valuable because once in a while he sees the Indians coming you know he's like Indians and everybody else is all busy hitting the horses and, and uh, you know and fooling around with the water and stuff and he keeps on Indians here they come oh well that's the job now it's a very important job albeit I can say very unpopular particularly if you happen to be an Indian uh very unpopular and also it's very unpopular to the guys in the wagon train because half of them are asleep it's easy to be there you know asleep and fooling around with the oats and stuff and this guy keeps out oh it's no good look at what's happening it's starting to rain it's coming down hey get up the tops look out well he's unpopular on both sides no question about it now i i have every reason to believe have you noticed for example wr has taken the position here uh they've been celebrating their 40th i say they because i really don't feel part of it They've been celebrating their 40th anniversary, and it's like one little big, one little big happy family, you know, with all of the Eastern Seaboard all going back through memory lane with Peggy and Albert and Dora 
and Dorothy and Dick and all. I notice they don't mention Dorothy and Dick too in this car. They're not part of the uh, family either. No, they're not really. And uh, it's a funny thing, even though they've been here longer than most, uh, strangely enough, they've never become part of the family. Nor has Long John. I hope you know that. Nor have I. Hope you know that. That's right. Yeah, and, and, and so when these people are all talking about how wonderful and how warm it is to be part of the family, and they're talking about, yes, you have your favorites, your old favorites. There's John B. Gambling, John L. Gambling, John G. Gambling, John G. L. D. Gambling, John Gambling the Third. There's all the gamblings, and then there's Dora and Albert and little Patty and all the families and all the family families. They never mention me. Uh, they really don't. Nor do they mention John, nor Dorothy and Dick. And uh, that's true. So uh, it, it, we're, we're this way, you see. It's, it's just like I'm out in the bushes. So now my, my value to you is it depends on whether you're an Indian. Again, I must say that. It also depends on whether you're half asleep at the switch there and you're just fooling around with the oats. Now, I, I, see, the thing that I feel is a profound sense of, and this has always been the position of whatever passes for the artist at any given time, he has a terrible desire to become either an Indian or an oat dealer on the top of the way. No, that's true. You, you can't help but want to be either driving the wagon there half asleep in the sun with, uh, you know, 87 kids in the back there in the wagon and, the, and the, you know, just uh, fooling around and sleeping away there. This is uh, must be great. That's that's all I can say. It's a great. Then on the other hand, the Indians seem to have something on the ball too. You know, they've got a uh, they've got a real position. They're they're identified. They're Indians. I mean, they're Indians. They're coming charging out of the hills, and uh, the guy in the wagon, he's got the thing too. He's a slob, so he's identified. Okay, now what is the guy who's skulking in the bushes who keeps hollering, "Hey, the Indians are coming"? He's not on the wagon. He secretly wants to be. Somehow I didn't make the train when they started, and, you know, one thing and another. And on the other hand, he doesn't really feel as angry about the Indians as the other people because he can see their side, too, you know? He never made it. So you got this uh, ambivalent problem. Now, now I can, I'm going to put it up to you. If you want me to become an Indian, I can easily become an Indian. As a matter of fact, that's one of the most difficult problems of all of the, of the person who's in the bushes. He has the tendency to listen to both sides. That's true, and you know this can be very, very unpopular in our time. It can be a terrible thing to, to have to to have to admit that that uh, you know some some the Indian has a point, you know, and I'm using the Indian purely as an allegorical Indian here. Uh, it's uh, very difficult. And on the other hand, I can I can admit the guy sitting in the wagon there, sleeping in the sun. He's got his point. Who doesn't want to you know flub along there with a wagon full of stuff? With all the dough in the world and the sun coming down. I mean, why shouldn't? Who, who, who doesn't want to be this? So, you're very difficult problem to be in the bushes here. You want to be one or the other. Now, I'm going to... I, I shouldn't really do this. I'll put it up to you. Do you want me to become a wagon driver here? Or do you want me to become an Indian? Or do you want me to stay in the bushes? It's up to you. No, it isn't up to you. What are you talking about? Stop it, Shepard. Not up to you. It is not up to you. I don't care what you think. Crying out loud. What am I doing here? Whew, boy. I was just about to sell out. Do you realize that I, within 30 seconds I'd have sold out? Well, now, look, it's easy to sell out. And, and uh, I almost did there. I want one guy to call up and say, Shepard, that was a close one. <laughs> I just want to hear that you're with me out there. Oh. Pretty quiet. 
Well, uh, getting back to the junk mail, you see, I'm looking at all this junk mail, and I get one here the other day that I thought is deserving of notion and mention. It tells about this device, you see. It's for people who are really Americans. Again, they're, they're the wagon drivers, you know, who really are wagon drivers who really have a load full of a load full of oats there and the whiskey in the back there and the whole business in the wagon. And it's for these real Americans. And the ad said this, Dear American, so do you have trouble uh, from time to time answering what you really believe in? Do you have trouble when people confront you with a question of ideological nature about being an American? Do you have difficulty studying involved books on political philosophy? Well, we have what we call the new plant-a-prayer system. And yet, you go to bed, you see, if you're a real American, you stick this thing under your pillow, and you turn on the tape, yeah, and it says things to you in your sleep. And, and uh, I, I kind of like this thing. You see, while you sleep, it says it. You're an American. You're a great person. Americans are the greatest people in the world. You are a right thinker. Hooray for Barry Goldwater. Hooray for Barry Goldwater. Hooray for Edwin Walker. You are a right thinker. You are conservative. Above all things, you believe in the individual. Do you understand? And to believe in the individual is to believe in the American way of life, and to believe in the American way of life is to make dough. Who can argue that? Down with Social Security. Repeat it over and over to yourself, and do not allow thyself to be... Repeat this prayer after me. Oh, in all things, I will think right. I will believe in all things good and true and clean. I will never be subverted from right thinking. I am an American. of atheism.
you know what you stand for. It's an interesting tape, wasn't it? I mean, that sets the record straight. Speaking of setting the record straight, this is... <coughs> poor old 40-year-old W-O-R, AM, FM, all the rest of it here, in the Big Onion, and we'll be here until 12 midnight. Somehow, I can't help but feel a great compassion for people who know so little about what they believe in and how they feel and what they are that they have to play a tape stuck under their pillow to keep reminding them and somehow implant it in them in their sleep and then in the next in the next page of this junk mail is this magnificent little item here i think i think this calls for uh, yes just a little uh, soups on there Now available, I am a card-carrying American cards with flag and pledge of allegiance in gold script. this little one ad that came through in this piece of junk mail. This little uh, classified ad, it said, Ultra Spartan, conservative, ascetic, slaves to work, duty, and far future, one half rich associates wanted. No investment. Protect your business from pilfering by your dishonest employees. <laughs> Tell us more about it today, and I know it. Oh, 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 oh. It's, it's pretty hard, you know, to tell. Because everybody has the right answers, and everyone has learned the right things to say. Whether it be about calendar art, 
or whether it be about the kind of gasoline you should burn in your car, or whether it's about cigars, or whether it's about sex, or whether it's about bees' knees. Everyone has the right things to say. No question about it. But you know, it's a funny thing. Uh, most of the things that are really happening among us, the real things that are not theoretical, but that are right there in front of us, are hardly ever discussed, and in fact, they're hardly ever touched upon. Only rarely do we recognize them for what they are. I remember one time when I was a kid, you know, you, you pick these things up, and I guess this is how you kind of get to be, I suppose, the guy in the bushes. This is one little example of it. I, I suppose the people who are riding the horses, if they're Indians, are deeply involved in Indianism. I mean, no, no other thing. This is what they're involved in. The guys who are sitting on the front end of the wagon are deeply involved in wagon sitting. And so, hence, nothing else seems to be able to get in. But then, then if, if you're not involved, if you're sitting out there in the bushes, you're in a completely different situation. I've, I believe the difference is this. That those who are on one side of the fence completely believe everything that's said about that side of the fence. And never question it. No matter what side of the fence it is. It must be wonderful to have an unquestioning attitude about yourself. It must be wonderful, and I, and I imagine this is one of the reasons why, well, of course, uh, it's not a matter of imagining, it is, it is undoubtedly one of the reasons why there has been, ever since the very first two or three guys sat on the, on the banks of this antediluvian lake, there has always been some sort of strong dogma that has filtered through the mind of man. Because if you can get dogma strong enough of any kind, it removes all elements of self-doubt. In fact, self-doubt just doesn't exist. It's just not there. That's what the whole idea of dogma is. And so, if, if there are two guys, you know, I, it must have been interesting to sit there. In fact, I have this friend, the University of Pennsylvania, who's a famous anthropologist, an archaeologist, and he was trying to put it together a couple of years ago, how it must have happened. And they have a few little stones and rocks around that are left over. About these two guys sitting on the shore of this lake. One guy's named Og and the other was named Charles. And they were sitting there and once in a while they'd get down and bust up a clam or two. And then uh, one day it became quite apparent to Og that his left knee was hurting. Things, you know, it's funny how uh, there, you know, there was a time in man's, in man's uh, history when he was not even aware of the passage of time. Are you aware of that? Time seems so natural to us now that we can't comprehend anyone not knowing that time didn't pass. But there was a time when they didn't know about this thing of time. You know that? They never, they didn't recognize it. And are you aware that, that they can almost pinpoint historically when the concept of time became a part of the sum of human knowledge or myth? Oh, yes. Well, how? You mean how do they pinpoint it? Well, that's that's very complicated. But uh, that it uh, there there is a time, you know, when this came into the knowledge of mankind. How? Well, it began to develop about the time that man was a little later, actually, when man began to develop techniques for what you might call abstract communication, writing. Uh, writing is an abstract form of communication. It is a symbol for the word. And at about that time, a little bit later, 
it began to creep into the various things that were left around that men were beginning to be aware that there was such a thing as time. Now, their concept of time was very different from our concept of time now. And I'm not nearly, not even just merely rec uh, recognizing the fact that we measure it differently. But their idea of what it was was a very different thing. And so these two guys are sitting there, and one of them is having trouble with his knee. Little recognizing the fact, or even understanding it, or even knowing that the trouble with his knee was that he was over the hill. His knee had never hurt before. And since, as he stood up to go down to the lake to pick up some clams, his left knee gave him trouble. And he limps down there, and he limps back with the clams, squats down. Now, we ourselves would say, well, he's getting old, because we recognize time. But they didn't have that out then, you see. All he knew was that something was happening that hadn't happened before, and it was a worrisome thing that could easily lead you to sing the blues of the night there on the shore of that antediluvian lake as you crack your clams. Well, Charles, being the first wise guy, and incidentally, that, that is pinpointed historically, that up to that point, there were no such thing as wise guys, but this was the first one. Uh, he later has, of course, the, 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 the wise guy. Now, I'm, I'm using it in it's a classical sense, wise man, wise guy. Capital letters, wise. The one with all the answers. Now, if you, if you believe in what he says, he is a wise man. If you don't believe in what he says, he's a wise guy. See, but the, the shade of difference there is very subtle. Very, very subtle. And so this wise guy slash wise man looked at Og and said, There's a reason. And he said, A reason? My knee, it hurt. He says, there is a reason. The whole concept of reason hadn't come into being yet. So you see, Charles was a groundbreaker, an icebreaker in many areas. This is also typical of wise guy and or slash wise man. He says, uh, reason. The reason is because last night, the white owl on the fir tree hooted twice. He did? says, yes, every time white owl on fir tree hoots twice, trouble with knee. Had answered it then. He says, always this way? Always. Well, sure enough, the next day, he had trouble with his knee, which was natural. But because he was a sound sleeper, he couldn't stay up to see whether the white owl hooted or not. However, oddly enough, and coincidentally, guess who was there listening? Right. And so, next day, I got trouble with knee. He says, my knee hurts. True, said Charles. White owl hooted twice last night. Oh. And that was the beginning of dogma. Right there. And so it became axiomatic that every time the white owl hoots twice problem with knee. And you see, it removed doubt, and somehow Og felt better about it. His knee had a reason for hurting. And furthermore, it became very comforting to know that you could foretell knee hurting. And then the next week after this week of hurting with the knee, Og got tired of it, because my knee is hurting. 
What, what can we do about this? Charlie says, there is a cure. So what is the cure? The cure is bring 700 clams to this point by high sunup. And I will speak with the white owl. Well, there it was, there it was starting there. It's downhill ever since. <laughs> Just thought you ought to know. So, uh, no, it wasn't payola. No, it was the first tribute. It's not payola. It's tribute. Of course, tribute is also payola. But payola came later. See, if you don't like what people are doing, it's called payola. If you like what they're doing, it's called a contribution. It's the very big difference there. We've got to understand that language plays a great part in the symbolic life of man. Okay? Understand that? Well, I'm this kid now. Here's, here's how you, you get yourself thrown out into the brambles if you don't watch it. Oh, yes. I'm this kid, and I'm, I'm sitting around the house, and at the time, my father was working in an office. And uh, he had all these people with him there. And occasionally, they would come home to dinner. And, of course, the people from where my father worked, from the office... Now, I'm sure that only a kid who's listening to me would understand this. The adults don't remember it. But the people who work in your father's office have a very special place in your world. Oh, yes, a very special place. They are, they are really sort of important. They're kind of extensions of your father. Do you know what I mean? They're important people. They're kind of celebrities. And they're, 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 they're rock-like. I, I can't... I, uh, it's a very difficult relationship of a kid to the people who work with his father. It's very, very difficult. But they used to come around once in a while, and uh, there was there was always a special uh, and a very secret thing that went on between my father and those people. It was the office thing, which was never really brought home except near the end of the month when there would be ledgers spread out all over the all over the dining room table, and my father would work on them with with blue ink. And uh, he would get mad and stay up till 4 o'clock in the morning and yell and throw long streamers of paper, you know, that had, had numbers on it from the adding machines around and stuff like that and swear and stuff. And one time he spilt the, spilt the India ink on the uh, lace tablecloth, and to this day it remains there. Well, this is all part of that world of the office. And once in a while I would be taken down there, and the big, you know, oh, this was a big deal, you know, to go down to the office, and they had all these cages and there was a, a, a true office smell, you know, the smell of, of rubber stamps and the smell of rubber bands and paper clips and the smell of the oil stuff that they put on the floor and that the smell of waste paper. You know what waste paper smells like just before it's going to be swept up when the guys throw all this, uh, this uh, stuff that they throw on the floor, all this uh, sawdust with the oil, you know, and it's, all, it's got that smell. It's, it's, it's not a bad smell. It's the waste paper smell. It's kind of the school hall smell. You know what that smell is? Kind of an oily, papery, inky, rubbery smell. And it's a very good smell. It's a warm smell. It's a smell to most people which spells one wonderful thing. It spells security, warmth. It does. It, 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 and it also, for many men, I might point out, it spells peace. It spells order. And it spells love. To, to many women, it, it spells their world, their life. Well, I just began to understand that through this, this little incident that occurred. There was a woman who was a middle-aged woman. And, I, of course, I don't know. I was a kid. She might have been nine years old. 
I mean, but she seemed middle-aged to me, but she really was. She was in her, in her, I, I would guess now about her middle 40s. Now, yes, yeah, I, I think that's about what she was. And I remember her name. Her name was Kate. And Kate worked at the office, and she was one of these efficient women who, when I would come down there, of course, I didn't know about her being efficient. I just knew she was important. And I was a kid, and I would come down, and she would be behind the cage there. And all the all the people would be walking past, checking in and turning in the books and turning in the strips, and she'd be hitting this little machine, and she was working the comptometer, and, and everybody would be talking to her, and she had pencils stuck in her hair and rimless glasses, and she was really part of this whole scene. Well... You don't expect, or with, well, you do expect, and yet you don't, to see these people out of that context. Well, once in a while, Kate would come over to our house for dinner, and she was an unmarried lady of an uncertain age. Uh, she was uh, she was a maiden lady. They didn't call them that. She was just not married, that's all. You know, she was a middle-aged lady who wasn't married, and she had this flat, and she had this mother that she was always writing to in St. Louis. Well, Kate would come around once in a while, and she was always with this man named George. Well, now, the one thing they used to say about George was that George drank. Now, I never saw him drink, but that's what they always said. They'd be like, George drinks, you know. And Kate had been going with George for years. This I knew. And George had been an ex-boss of hers. Uh, he worked at some other place where she had worked. And uh, she was always going with George, and she was always going to marry George. She and George were always on the verge for years. And uh, they were always talking about furniture. And they were discussing where they were going to live and stuff. And so when they would come over to our house to have dinner, we would sit around, we would, we would eat, and everyone would talk about George and Kate, just sort of like they were married, you know, George and Kate. And George would talk about when they were going to get married, and Kate would talk about when they would get married. And everybody would talk, just, just, just like they were married people, you know. And I'm just this little kid. I'm sitting there eating away there, and George and Kate became an entity. You know how couples become entities? Like uh, Fred and Ruthie, like Mert and Marge or something. It was George and Kate. Well, Kate was always down at the office, and that led, and led a kind of an extra thing of glamour around it. She was so fairy, because she, she and my father, you see, could talk that special language. And they would sit there at the table, and they would laugh about stuff, about Clarence. You know, Clarence the other day, when they were turning in the, when they were turning in the uh, inventory books on the, on the number seven stock, <laughs> you know, Clarence, the other day, no one, and they had this special talk, which meant nothing to any rest of us, but it seemed very glamorous and very special and very exciting. Well, so George and Kate would come around. Well, one night, after George and Kate left, I'm sitting there, and my father's sitting there, and my kid brother's sitting there, and the lady from across the street was sitting there, Mrs. Stryker, who was a thin, angry lady who kind of looked like a sick parakeet. Uh, yeah, Mrs. Stryker looked, you know, the, the parakeets, they sort of hold their heads down, and this is the way Mrs. Stryker was. Well, Mrs. Stryker was married to a tough guy who who operated a truck, and she had three tough kids who at the age of seven were already tough guys. Uh, they were drink, they were beer drinkers before they even heard of beer. I mean, these kids didn't even know about beer, but they were already, you know, that kind. So Mrs. Stryker is sitting there, and there was a kind of a relationship. Everyone knew everybody else, and there wasn't any jazz going on. And um, Mrs. Stryker said, uh, I wonder when George and Kate are going to get married. Well, nobody ever approached it that bluntly, you see. She said, I wonder when George and Kate are going to get married. Well, there was a little moment there for 
for regrouping. And I'm sitting there, I'm a kid, you know, as they always to say, uh-oh, there are little ears. I can remember my mother always saying, be careful, some ears in this room are bigger than cabbages, meaning shut up the kids here. Well, I'm sitting there and my ears are bigger. Boy, you talk about cabbages, they're going, see? Because any time you talked about men and women and stuff like that, I was ready. So, oh yeah, you know, there was all kinds of mysterious stuff went on between men and women. So I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm listening. And she says, when are they going to get married, do you wonder? Well, my mother says, they're not going to. And, of course, this astounded me because I had been hearing this talk. And, and uh, Kate was always talking about George. And George is always talking about Kate. My mother says, they're not going to. Well, Mrs. Stryker says, well, what do you mean? Always talking about it. My father kept his mouth shut. He worked at the office. He knew. So uh, she says, what do you mean? My mother says, well, you see, Kate doesn't want to. And that really got Mrs. Stryker going. She, what do you mean doesn't want to? Why, every woman wants to. My mother says, oh, no. She doesn't want to. And the reason she goes with George is that she knows that George is not about to marry anybody. Especially since George has a wife and three kids. Boy, I'm sitting there, my eyes are bulging and my ears are getting wider and wider. And she says, you see, Kate uh, just doesn't want to get married, that's all. She's afraid of it. And furthermore, she hates men because of it. But yet she knows that she should be talking about being married. And she, she wants to be married on one, on one end of the scale and on the important end of the scale she doesn't. And so then they started to drink coffee, and that's all I heard about it. Well, now that 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 stuck in my mind, and from the time that from the time that was said, and Kate and George would come around, I would look. You know, it was very different then. It was so different. They kept talking about being married. They kept talking about it. They kept talking about the furniture. But me, being a kid, I'm listening now with a with a very different set of values. And uh, my mother kept talking very politely about it. She was playing the game. I didn't realize that, that it was part of the game. This is the adult game that she is pretending and my father is pretending and everybody else is pretending. But I'm a kid, see? Well, the, the head had to finally pop. It's just like something festering, you know. It finally had to happen. So one day they're over there and it was a beautiful summer day and it just came right out of me. I said in a very loud, clear voice, and I remember distinctly saying it, I said to Kate, I said, Mrs. Kate, if somehow they always had me calling her Mrs. Kate or Aunt Kate or something like that. I said, Aunt Kate, uh, my mother says you don't want to get married to George. And I didn't, you know, I, I, I just thought it was a thing that she would want to talk about. Well... My mother just says, oh, he's kidding. He, you know, he's just kidding. <laughs> what do you mean, Jeannie? Why did I say that? I said, well, don't you remember the day Mrs. Stryker was over here? And she says, now, what are you talking about? What are you out of your head? And Kate just sat there, and George didn't say anything. He crossed his legs about four times in opposite directions. Until finally he had them tied in a bow knot. And uh, I says, don't you remember? You, you said that the reason that she didn't want to get married was it because she was scared of it. 
and because George wasn't going to marry her anyway, and that's why she liked going with George, because she knew that George would never make her get married, and George didn't want to get married because he's married and got three kids. Don't you remember? Well, I don't have to tell you the rest of the story, except to say that George and Kate never came to our house again. And I remember after they left that day, they left very early. My mother didn't know what to say to me. I didn't know it at the time, but all I knew was that there was a very peculiar atmosphere hanging around the house. And everyone sort of laughed about all this and says, oh, you know, he's just a little kid. He's just making put the funnies there. And after it was over, my mother just looked at me and said, you shouldn't have said that. And I said, how come, Ma? And she said, well, someday you'll understand. It's one of the very few times that I remember having been told, someday you'll understand. And now, you know, <laughs> I do. <laughs> it's very spooky. And I have been observing this phenomenon ever since the age of seven. And I have come to realize that in this town, particularly in New York, there must be 50,000 women who are of uncertain age, who are vaguely in love with their boss, and who probably even at one time had a little thing going with them. And they're, they're living out their world in, in this little apartment someplace where they grow plants and have cats, and they read mystery stories, and they knit, and they go to the theater on Thursday nights, and once in a while they... They will take a, a vacation trip to Nassau with some other woman. And they're vaguely in love with the boss. Not vaguely, really. Totally and completely, but very covertly. And the boss himself, of course, loves it. He's perfectly aware of it. And every day when he comes into the office, his stomach feels hard. And, and he, has, he has, for that brief moment when he comes in and that moment when he leaves... He has a sense of genuine power over somebody in the very real sense. Not the kind of power that comes from writing memos and hanging them on the bulletin board, but real power over someone's emotional life. And he, 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 feels, he feels good. He feels big and important. And as a matter of fact, uh, there are probably 50,000 men in this town who are, are deadly afraid of their wives finding out the real story about the girl at the office or the woman at the office. And on the other hand, you see, he knows she never will because she doesn't want to know either. And so the game gets bigger and bigger and more complicated and more convoluted and more deeply, more deeply ingrained into our subconsciousness until finally we don't even know it's a game any longer. That Kate really does believe she wants to marry George. And... and George really does believe he wants to marry Kate. And yet, uh, in, the, in the very important, that, that dark little scurrying thing underneath the liver where the decisions are made, it will never be done. Because Kate has been systematically shunting off men who really did want to marry her all of her life. The first thing that she throws aside is, is a man when she finds that he really does want to do it. And then she says, oh, I couldn't stand him. Why, that's that silly fool, brother flowers, all that idiotic stuff. Oh, what a nut. What a silly idiot. Somehow, these men who want her don't excite her. The only persons who really do excite her 
are the men who do not want her. And this is the most exciting thing of all. And so this, this population of these people is growing by leaps and bounds, to use a wonderful old Midwestern cliche. You can just see it leaping and bounding down the highway there. But it is growing. And as, as, our, as our offices become more and more abstract, with less and less actual responsibility, where the men who come into these offices make no decisions, really. The decisions are made by outside polling organizations, the actual decisions. The suggestions come from the sales management concern, which is hired by an outside organization to just make suggestions to the men inside until finally nobody has any responsibility. And yet there is a terrible desire for it, an awful desire for it. And so this, 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 growing, this growing involvement with the people around you, where, where, the, where the woman of uncertain age, every morning when the man walks in and he finds that she has laid out for him the hot cup of coffee, she has laid out for him his, his pencils, and she has opened his mail, he feels... Yeah, suddenly he feels that, that, that leonine heart, that great, that great stalking feral beast, that beast that lurks in the jungle with long claws and thin white teeth. And for that moment his eyes, his eyes are shining and glistening, looking out of that primeval forest of the carnivore. Oh, I'm important and I'm dangerous. Life and death I control with that woman and she goes back to her machine and sits the sound of her stays squeaking slightly her doily over there on the air conditioning machine vibrating quietly her fresh geranium plant nicely watered and the game goes on and on and on on and on and on just never mention it just never mention it